Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3. We're going to look at the entirety of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. You'll see the text there on your bulletins. Acts chapter 3 through 4, verses 1 through 13. Here now again the very word of God for God's people. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in, all, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the the midst, they inquired, 
By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as you always do, we ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word to your glory. Lord, may all that we say and do here tonight magnify Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. At this past year's General Assembly, which John and I had the privilege of attending, uh, the opening worship service was led uh, by Reverend Howard Donahue, who preached a wonderful sermon uh, from the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. Jesus is here on the cross and He declares to the thief beside him who's just declared of his own in faith, recognizing Jesus as the one who was suffering unjustly, himself as the one suffering justly. Jesus says to that thief, today you will be with me in paradise. Reverend Donahue's sermon was a timely reminder in the midst of a whole lot of tension that was surrounding Our General Assembly was a reminder to look beyond our earthly disputes, to look beyond our earthly realm and consider the wonders and the beauties of the heavenly realm that awaits all who have trusted in Christ by faith. And I remember his point of application so clearly. It's still burned into my brain and uh, it, it, it strikes me even now to repeat it. But at the end of his sermon, he called us, Reverend Donahue called us, a room full of thousands of ruling elders and teaching elders, pastors from across the nation. He said that we ought to cultivate that preposition, that we ought to cultivate those words, with me, with Christ in paradise. What Reverend Donahue accomplished in uh, that short 26 minutes that he was preaching in that massive meeting hall in St. Louis was that he instilled in us a sense of uh, incredible longing. I remember looking to my left and to my right and seeing many in tears, particularly those who were much older than I I was and am. He instilled in us a, a great longing and desire to be with Christ. He reminded us of the heart of Christ, which reaches out to us, desiring that we would be with him where he is, and, and that message cut through the tension of that night and the apprehension that all of us had about the discussions that were to follow. And although tonight my feeble words cannot match Reverend Donahue's in power and eloquence, and I shouldn't expect them to. After all, he's been in ministry for 30 plus years and he ought to know better than most what it means to long for heaven. Though I should say in five years of ministry, I have learned well what it means to long for heaven. Still, I want to share in his application when he said that we ought to cultivate that preposition, that we ought to cultivate a sense of desiring to be with Jesus. Tonight, though, I want to look at those words 
those precious and powerful words, with Christ, not as a motivation to long for heaven, but rather as a means and motivation to help us as we live in the present to evangelize for Christ's glory because we're not home yet. God knows we're headed there, and soon probably, but we're not there yet. You see, I I don't believe in the phrase, I've said this before, I don't believe in the phrase that you can become so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. I argue the opposite. I think that you must be so heavenly minded and only then can you really be of optimal earthly good. What it is is that as we abide in Christ and only by abiding in Christ can we then become uh, heavenly minded and so uh, proclaim the kingdom of God as we ought to and as we need to. So tonight I want us to focus on how cultivating a desire to be with Christ, what these disciples here were known for. I want to encourage you to cultivate that, uh, particularly with a focus on our earthly witness and evangelism. Evangelism is a necessary part of our heavenly mindedness. We can't say, we just can't say that we've really understood what it means to long for heaven if we have not also understood and known what that desire is like to long for others who do not know Christ to have that desire. Because part of our longing for Christ is actually longing for others to know Christ so that we can be together in heaven, not simply for ourselves, or this would be the most selfish relationship on earth. But no, Christ calls us to look outwards with a desire to share the wonderful union that we've experienced with Christ with others. And so to be heavenly minded is to be evangelism minded. It's to long for the knowledge of God in Christ to fill and cover the earth as the waters fill and cover the sea. To be heavenly minded is to be always prepared, and not only prepared, but eager to give a reason for the hope that's within us. And there's never been a more important time for us to have some hope to share with people. If this sermon that we heard this morning is any indication, the world out there uh, is bitter and it is dark and it desperately needs the hope of Christ. It is the hope of Christ and the Spirit of Christ which are the only things that can break the hearts of stone that presently hate God and turn those hearts so that they would love God instead. Never in my lifetime can I remember has there been such an opportunity to proclaim hope. Well, the wrong response to the sermon that we heard this morning and the sermon that we're going to hear tonight, the wrong response would be to fortify ourselves, to build our walls higher, to close ourselves in, to, to gather together into our communities and to say, well, just let the ones on the outside go ahead and perish. That would be the wrong response. John called us to be faithful this morning, to stay the course. Part of staying the course means also proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. So to be heavenly minded is to be evangelism minded. And it's, it's wonderful that, that we're instruments that God uses to call others to himself. It's a great privilege and one that we sadly miss out on all too often. So I say all that to, to, to say that we're going to turn, as we have already tonight, to look at the days of the early church, the exciting days when the gospel is going forth by the mouth of uh, Christ's disciples. And we're going to look at four principles tonight of Christ-centered evangelism. Four principles of Christ-centered evangelism. The first is that Christ-centered evangelism is dependent upon the Spirit. It's dependent upon the Spirit of God. Second, Christ-centered evangelism is bold in the face of sin. Christ-centered evangelism is bold in the face of sin. Third, that Christ-centered evangelism is unapologetically one-way. It's a one-way street. 
Christ-centered evangelism is, fourthly and lastly, inherently grounded in humility. Those are our four principles of Christ-centered evangelism. And as we consider each of these in turn tonight, uh, let's first begin by asking, well, what is evangelism? Right? Depending on your experience, you may have a lot of images that come to mind when you think of evangelism. Some of you may think of evangelism explosion. You may think of programs. You may think of tracts and pamphlets. Some of you might imagine going door to door, knocking on neighbors' doors and speaking with them. Some of you might picture international missions. Some of you might picture a sermon and preaching. Some others may think of acts of service and mercy. But what is evangelism in its most basic and biblical sense? No doubt you've probably heard some explanations before. I don't expect to add to those necessarily. But let's start from a point of clarity about evangelism before we move forward. The word itself uh, for evangelism, where we get evangelism, is the Greek word euangelion, which is a combination of the root words eu, meaning good, and angelos, meaning message or messenger. And this we translate into gospel or good news. Now, as a verb, euangelizo, the action uh, of evangelism is that of announcing or proclaiming or declaring. It's a declaration of the gospel. The gospel is the content. The action is the announcement or the proclamation of the gospel. And so an evangelist is one who, by definition, does this announcing and proclaiming or declaring of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might rightly call them, if we're thinking in court language or uh, uh, in kingly language, we might call them a herald. A herald is somebody who would take the news or decrees of the king and go and declare them to the townspeople. What are we doing but declaring that the kingdom of God has come in Christ Jesus? An evangelist is a herald. The point is here simply that evangelism itself is always involving an act of speech. It's always in, it always involves a kind of verbal proclamation. And the reason I say this is that sometimes we can get evangelism and witnessing kind of confused, or rather we use them kind of interchangeably. It is true that we can witness Christ, that we can bear witness about who Christ is through the way that we live, through our lives and the way that we live them. It, it, this makes sense, right? If Paul commends us to uh, eat and drink to the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? That means that even our eating and drinking can be messages. They can be pro- proclamations uh, of our purpose in life, which is to glorify God. And that our highest aim is to bring God glory. But this is not evangelism in a strict sense. Because evangelism is not simply the way that we live. Evangelism is proclamation. It is heralding. It is speaking. It is announcing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what we see Peter and John doing here. And of course, uh, what you see so often in the New Testament, especially in Acts, is you'll see a miracle, and then you'll see a sermon accompanying it. Why? Well, because the miracle was meant to be confirmation of God's power and gospel, which was then explained through the sermon. These things went together. Demonstration of God's power and an explanation of that power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Peter and John here are, are doing just... Uh, just what we've defined as evangelism. They're heralding the coming. They're heralding the coming of the kingdom of God, which has come. It has come, and that is demonstrated in the miracle that they perform, this wonderful miracle of, of giving this man uh, his legs back. And the first principle that I mentioned is, is that Christ-centered evangelism is dependent upon the Spirit. And I think this is, is made perfectly clear in this passage, that the miracle was not done as Peter says, by the power and piety of him and John. 
Right, the first of the several climactic moments in this text that we've read tonight comes uh, when Peter and John heal this man. I also love that, uh, that it spends quite a bit of time telling us uh, this man's response, which uh, he walks and he leaps and he praises and he walks with walks and leaps and praises as he's going into the temple uh, to worship, which, of course, is the appropriate response to the revelation of God's kingdom. God reveals his power, and what do we do? We go and we worship, and so this man follows Peter and John into the temple to worship with them. Then when they come out, you'll notice in verse 11 that they're standing together and this man is clinging to Peter and John and, and people, rightly so, begin to kind of gather around. They're, they're, they're coming to gather around Peter and John and marvel at this miracle that's just taking place. No doubt the people were ready to start worshiping Peter and John. They were ready to, they were ready to put the, robes of, the kingly robes upon Peter and John and start worshiping them because people were fascinated by the miraculous as they are here. But Peter immediately addresses the people, pointing away from himself and John and directing their interest, directing their wonder to the real source of power. He's very direct here. He says, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this in verse 12? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power and piety we have made this man walk again? And I find it interesting that uh, the, the evangelists of our own day that we tend to admire, we admire them for these qualities, do we not? We admire them for their power. We admire them for their piety. It seems inescapable for us that what we tend to do is that we believe that somebody is more godly by how visible that godliness is in demonstrations of that kind of power and piety. We exalt those who are eloquent. We exalt those who are charismatic. And at least when I was growing up, If you were going to be an evangelist, you had to be a bit bombastic, too. I love that word. Bombastic is how I would describe many of the evangelists that I grew up listening to. Those are the people that we looked at to say, this is the prime example of the evangelist. But I want to caution us because such admiration can easily be misplaced. We admire these people for their power and piety, but we often easily forget where that power and piety comes from. And for those of us who might be on the receiving end of that admiration, we have to be very, very careful. Because it is far easier to accept that admiration than it is to redirect it, as Peter does here. It would have been far easier for Peter to allow the people to worship him for such an act. That temptation is very real today for those who are gifted. It is far easier to bask in glory than it is to reflect it. But people, uh, Peter will not allow the people to worship him for an act done by the power and piety of God alone. And he says this to the people, and when he's brought before the Jewish, authority, he is, uh, Jewish authorities, he again uh, points to the power of God in Christ as the only thing that has made this man walk. And it's what's so powerful about this declaration. And of course, the power is, made, is emphasized even more by the fact that this man was lame from birth. And in those days, when somebody was lame or blind from birth, not only did the people consider that to be a curse from God, but they believed that the only way that that could be resolved or healed, uh, the only way a healing could take place, would that it would have to come from the Messiah himself. And so this, of course, adds to the, the emphasis here. And Peter is saying, yes, you're right. It is God's power alone that has healed this man. So too should our efforts then in evangelism always point away from us. Our boldness in proclaiming the gospel ought to always encourage a greater love for the power and piety of God. And if it's not, we need to check ourselves. 
that boldness ought to be fueled by a great dependence upon the Spirit of God. He's the one who changes hearts. And that really does take the pressure off us, or it should. Now, I would venture a guess that while some of us probably do face the challenge of sometimes redirecting people's affirmation and praise, I bet the majority of us probably face the challenge more of insecurity and fear when it comes to evangelism. We struggle to speak up with any boldness, uh, and, and maybe we even struggle to speak up at all. Maybe we say nothing. I, I think we're often hesitant to evangelize. We're he- hesitant to declare the gospel because we feel inadequate. We feel inadequate for the task. We think it ought to be reserved for the pastors and the preachers. Or otherwise, we're maybe frightened by the, the possibility of disagreement or conflict. We're worried that they may ask us something that we may not be able to answer. Maybe we're consumed by what people think about us, how they'll perceive us. Uh, I remember when I was growing up, uh, DC Talk put out this great song called Jesus Freak. I don't know if you've ever listened to it or heard it. It's a great song to roll down your windows and turn up to about 50 and just blast as you're going through the neighborhood. Uh, But the point of that song was basically, I don't care if people know that I'm a Jesus freak. Well, that ought to be our perspective in evangelism. But so often we are consumed by what people think of us. And trust me, I know what that's like. But if we're depending on the Spirit of God, that, 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 go, that pressure goes away. If we're depending on the Spirit of God, not only to be what is the effective means of our evangelism, but also if we're trusting that the Spirit of God will work through us, however feeble and frail, well, that keeps us both from pride, but it keeps us also from insecurity. And so Christ-centered evangelism is that which depends upon the Spirit of God. And this is helpful for both, again, the person struggling with pride in evangelism and and the person struggling with fear or inadequacy. I want you to hear these great words from Matthew chapter 10 that Jesus speaks himself uh, to his disciples as they are uh, about to make their way out into the city to go and evangelize themselves. Here's what Jesus says. He says, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Listen to this. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. That's incredible, isn't it? Jesus told his disciples, listen, when you are put on the stand to testify about my kingdom and my glory. Not only will I fill you with my words, but my spirit is actually going to be the one who speaks through you. That should take all the pressure off of us in evangelism. It's incredible. The prideful evangelist is humbled to know that neither the content or the effectiveness of his speech is because of his own ability. But likewise, the fearful evangelist, which is likely many of us, may also be encouraged to know that they don't need to fear their own inadequacy. God provides all that is necessary for the proclamation of his gospel. He gives his spirit, and his spirit will give you the words, and his spirit will speak through you. This is what it means to depend upon the spirit of God. It's amazing here that in this chapter in Acts, we have a fulfillment of Jesus' words, isn't it? It's one of my favorite things to do is to find a place in Scripture where Jesus says something uh, or or there's a prophecy and then to see its fulfillment. Well, here in Acts, we see a fulfillment of Jesus' words. He tells his disciples, you're going to be dragged before rulers and authorities. Well, who is Peter before but the Jewish authorities? And it says here, look look with me at verse 8 of chapter 4. It says, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. 
So God is telling you in that, listen, I promised through Jesus that I would fill you with my spirit, give you the words, and that my spirit would speak through you. And then he shows you here that that was fulfilled through his disciples. So if it was done for Peter, bumbling old Peter, surely God can do the same for us through his spirit. Let us be those who trust and depend upon the spirit of God. Because it's the, it's the trusting in the Spirit that then will also allow us to be bold in the face of sin. And bold in the face of sin no matter who our audience is. You know, I'm not someone who enjoys conflict at all. I will go to incredible lengths to avoid it if I can. But boldness in evangelism will almost always inevitably bring some kind of conflict. We just need to... Reckon with that because light and darkness do not have fellowship. And so when they collide, there is bound to be some sparks. There's bound to be difficulty. Sin does not like the sound of holiness. And the simple truth is that people don't enjoy being told they're sinful. They don't enjoy being told that they hate God. They don't enjoy being told that they're wretched and depraved. Bible-believing Christians don't enjoy being told that they are sinful, much less those outside the covenant of community. But a Christ-centered evangelism is one that boldly declares the sinfulness of man. If we're going to preach the gospel, that means we must preach sin. If we're going to share the gospel, it means we must share man's greatest problem, which is sin. And that's all sin, not specific sins, but all sin. Peter is a a bit of a foil for me because uh, he was often quite eager for conflict. And although we have plenty of examples where that goes uh, wrong, like uh, cutting off the ear of the servant Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane, here at least we have an example of boldness, godly boldness, that's expressed in the right way. Because Peter pulls no punches here in his sharing of the gospel. Did you hear those words in verse 14 of chapter 3? He says, you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. And they did this because they hated God. Peter declares that to the common people who were listening, and then he says basically the same thing to the Jewish authorities. He says that they crucified Christ, who was himself the cornerstone that they had rejected. I think we ought to ask ourselves, are we willing to be as bold as Peter is here in our evangelism? Are we willing to call sin what it is? Are we willing to point out how very heinous it is before God? John so often says from this pulpit that we have to give people the bad news before they can really accept and understand the good news. This was something that struck me when I was uh, turned from my hypocrisy, living a double-sided life in both sin and trying to perform acts of Christianity. I was struck by this quote, from Paul David Tripp. He says in in summation, we cannot know and truly appreciate the grace of God if we have not truly understood the gravity of our sin. And that's true. Until we understand that it was our sin which was the cause for the crucifixion of Christ, then we cannot know the the true depths of 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 the pardon that was purchased by Christ's crucifixion as well. Christ centered evangelism requires boldness in the face of sin. But let me say as well, before we continue on, don't mistake boldness for abrasiveness. They are not the same. Don't mistake spirit-filled boldness for being a jerk. The key is, again, that that boldness is inspired by dependence upon the Spirit of God. That's why we start there. If we're depending upon the Spirit of God, that will inform our boldness so that it is not sharper than it needs to be. Listen, the Spirit is sharp enough. You don't need to add anything to it. 
But let us also be aware that boldness in evangelism requires a resolved willingness to call sin what it is. And it's going to get harder and harder in our day and age to call sin what it is because definitions are changing. We must stand upon the word of God. In a world that is squishy, we are to be firm, gentle and reasonable, but firm. And if the Spirit of God is irrespective of audiences, what I mean by that is that Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the common people. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke to the authorities. If the Spirit of God does not care who's listening, then neither ought we. We ought to be able to speak and proclaim the good news, whether we're standing in front of the president or whether we are evangelizing to our local neighborhood grocer. And may God give them ears to hear. The third mark of Christ-centered evangelism is that it's unapologetically one way. And there's really not a whole lot that I need to say here. This is very straightforward. Jesus declares in John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, here Peter declares in 4.12 something that sounds very similar, doesn't he? He says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Write that down and, and stick it in a card and put that in your pocket and pull it out next time you're evangelizing and remind people there are not many ways to salvation, nor are there many ways to God. There is one, and it is through Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no true evangelism that does not have Christ at its center. If we're declaring anything else, we're simply wasting our breath. Christ-centered evangelism is Christ-centered. And this seems intuitive, right? How could such clear passages of Scripture be interpreted in any other way? And yet you will find more and more that people will twist those Scriptures. Jesus becomes simply an attachment. He's part of a greater realm of spirituality and religion that includes many different saviors, most of whom look a lot like you and me. Let me be clear that universalism, which masquerades as a kind of spirituality, is no gospel. There's no hope in it. It's just the opposite of good news. It's deceptive and it's very unloving. The most loving thing that we can do is tell people the truth. And the truth is that salvation is found in no other name but Jesus Christ alone. The final mark of Christ-centered evangelism that I want to highlight for us tonight is this, that it is inherently grounded in humility, and this humility is determined by our nearness to Christ, by our proximity to Christ. Look at verse 13 of chapter 4 with me. When the Jewish authorities saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I'm so grateful that the Spirit of God does not look at our resumes first and see if we're worthy enough for being filled with Him. Even as someone who's at this time pursuing a Master's of Divinity, I love studying, speaking about, reading about theology. I'm amazed, though, and humbled by this fact that all that studying and all that reading and all that theology, that's not what's ultimately going to determine whether or not I'm effective in my evangelism. What will determine whether I'm effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is, am I near to Christ? Have I been with Christ? Have I spent time with Him? It's not, effectiveness in evangelism is not going to be determined by my GPA, thank the Lord, or my Hebrew paradigms, thank the Lord. Faithfulness in evangelism, effectiveness in evangelism is determined by our nearness to Christ. And that, that was 
That was the mark. That, that was the defining thing. I, I find this to be the most emphatic part of this entire chapter. That the Jewish authorities looked on John and Peter and they said, these men are common. They're uneducated. And yet the one thing that they walked away with, the only answer that they could have for the boldness that they saw in them was that they had been with Christ. They had been with Jesus. What else but the presence of Christ could transform lowly fishermen, a lowly fisherman like Peter into a powerful preacher of the gospel? What, what else but the presence of Christ could transform someone who had denied Christ three times earlier and yet now was willing to die for him? What else but the presence of Christ can transform us? We're weak and feeble and lowly, aren't we? But the Spirit of God does not look at our resumes and determine whether or not we are worthy or educated enough or whether we have the right station or career in life. What matters is whether or not we have been with Christ. If you ever feel like you're lacking in any gift or ability to share the gospel, just remember that Peter and John... (laughs) We're common and uneducated men in the eyes of society. And they may think the same of us. But again, what matters is that we have been with Jesus. Christ is the it factor, not us. And so to that end, I want to conclude tonight by commending each of you to cultivate that preposition. Cultivate being with Christ. Spend time with him. How can we herald a kingdom which we do not understand? How can we proclaim a gospel which we do not know? How can we speak of a king that we have not spent time with? How can we speak of loving a God who we don't ourselves know? Before I came to Northgate, I was preparing to go to the mission field, if you can believe that. And uh, I was going through the application, was almost finished with it. And they were calling me week by week, asking me to come. I was going to go serve at a church down there in Brazil. They were calling me week after week. And I got about 90% through with my exam and I got to the theological portion where it was asking me certain questions and uh, I recognized there I was struck by this fact that I did not know the God that I was professing to love that I did not know the God I was professing to love and the reality was is that I probably could have answered those theological questions they weren't difficult I probably knew the answers but the difference was is that I did not have Christ in my heart I had not been with Christ We can read all the books, we can study all the theology, but if those things don't drive us to the heart of Christ, then they're useless. What matters for us is whether or not we have been with Christ. And so again, to that end tonight, I want you to cultivate that preposition. At the end of the day, Christ is the center of it all. And we shouldn't expect anything less from a sermon entitled Christ-Centered Evangelism. Christ is the center of it all. And so, brothers and sisters, I call on you to abide in him even as he abides in you. For we can do nothing apart from him. But with him, nothing is impossible, including evangelism. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful that you fill us with your spirit to be heralds who go out into the earth to proclaim your good news. And Father, we do pray that you would strengthen us to do this. May we be those, Lord, who depend upon your Spirit. May we be those who are bold in the face of sin, no matter who's listening. Lord, help us as we evangelize our own family members who are often more difficult than those in positions of power. Lord, give us a boldness in the face of sin to call sin what it is as we stand upon your word. 
Father, I ask that we would be unapologetically one way, that we would declare in our evangelism that there is no other name by which we may be saved but Jesus Christ alone. And Father, lastly, I pray that in the light of Christ's glory, we would decrease and he would increase, Lord, so that people would see that the most important thing is to be with Christ and that people would see Christ in us and through us and by us in our words and actions. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen.